For 10 days during the summer of 2010, Flint residents walked the night in fear. Some carried fallen tree limbs to use as clubs for protection. Others toted bats, blades, or other weapons. The death toll was on the rise. Others narrowly escaped with their lives. No one knew who the next victim might be. A serial stabber was on the loose. This is Michigan Crime Stories. Michigan Crime Stories is a podcast that explores murder, mysteries, and mayhem in the Mitten State. Criminal behavior has always enthralled us. It's when societies determine what is and isn't allowed. We assume heinous crimes are committed by monsters, individuals we dehumanize in an effort to make sense of their deeds. Their victims sometimes seem distant, just faded names in a passing headline. But the terrifying truth is that crimes are committed by ordinary people, just like you and me. And many of those crimes happen right in our own backyard. My name is Gus Burns. And I'm Darcy Moran. We're reporters for MLive.com and your host for Michigan Crime Stories. This episode, told by MLive reporter Roberto Acosta, is titled Flint Serial Stabber. A large man approached 17-year-old Etwan Wilson and asked for directions in the early morning hours of August 1st, 2010. I turned away from him and he started attacking, Wilson would later say. The man stabbed Wilson in the chest and fled in a Chevy blazer. Wilson survived the attack, but now has a large scar running down the center of his chest. At the scene, a Genesee County Sheriff's deputy mentioned to another investigator that several stabbings had taken place during that especially violent year, a year with a record 66 homicides. Fewer than 24 hours later, Another stabbing left 49-year-old Arnold Miner dead in the city. Flint Township Police Detective Randy Kimes, while listening to the scanner, overheard details of the attack. He'd been investigating another homicide from a week prior, the fatal stabbing of 60-year-old Frank Kelly Brew. He began to wonder, were these stabbings somehow connected? Kimes went to the Flint scene and noticed details that were similar to his own case. For one, the killer didn't rob his victim. A meeting of local police chiefs was called. Together, they identified 14 stabbing victims that were possibly connected in and around Flint, including five that were fatal. The victims included Kelly Brew, Minor, Darwin Marshall, David Motley, and Emmanuel A. Muhammad. The fact that the first two fatal stabbings took place one month apart and occurred at the opposite ends of Flint contributed to the delay in law enforcement making the link. Law enforcement formed a task force led by Michigan State Police. They were now looking for one suspect, a serial stabber. Headed by Michigan State Police Detective Sergeant Alan Ogg, who since retired and now operates a private investigation business in Saginaw, the task force included resources from multiple state police posts in cooperation with the Flint Police Department and other local agencies. A hotline was established on August 11, 2010, and more than 300 tips were received in less than a day. A tip came in. We had a tip line set up with an 800 number that was manned um, 24 hours a day to answer the phone. It was a tip left by a woman whose father worked at Kingwater Market in Mount Morris Township 
that cracked the case wide open. The tipster said she met a man earlier that month who resembled a police sketch of the suspect. He had the same barbell-style piercing at the top of his ear. He also drove a Chevy Blazer. Og took note of the tip. Signed it to some investigators to follow up on, and they went to the market, um, reviewed surveillance video from the market, um, gained some additional background information on the employee at the market that the tip was related to, even though at that time we did not have a name for that employee. Um, I, as I recall, the market knew him by um, a first name only. Uh, I think they referred to him as Eli, was all they knew about him. And I think at that time we already had learned that Leesburg, Virginia had um, three different stabbings. Uh, their people had not died. The employee of that market had recently gone to Virginia and it fit into the time period of their stabbings, and that's a part of what gave it a higher priority. Leesburg, Virginia is where Eli's sister lived, but they still didn't know the connection or even the potential suspect's full name. Digging through surveillance video from the market, police spotted the blazer and their suspect. A store employee, the father of the tipster, worked alongside Eli during shifts over the summer. He provided investigators the suspect's phone number. It had a Virginia area code, but police were still not sure of the suspect's name. Investigators soon realized they'd recently busted that employee selling beer to a minor. The employee, and now their prime suspect, was none other than Elias Obulazam. Obulazam, at the time he arrived in Flint in May 2010, settled into a home with his uncle on the city's far east side. An Israeli native and the youngest of six children, Abulazam's father died when he was a boy. Abulazam later told a psychiatrist that he died along with his father. Abulazam lived in various places as a child, including California, Florida, Virginia, and Israel. At one point in his youth, Abulazam tried to commit suicide and was admitted into a psychiatric facility where a doctor said he was psychotic. He was again admitted to a psychiatric facility after he stabbed a friend in the neck in Virginia in 2009. Abulazam took to floating from place to place as a young adult, spending a month or two here and there, and having married twice, both subsequently ending in divorce. He moved to Flint after his sister rejected Abulazam's request to live with her in Leesburg, Virginia. The first stabbing occurred a little over two months after Abulazam arrived in Flint. While at first police thought the stabbings were unrelated, Og's team connected them to Abulazam. We were able to get a phone number for him, and then we were able to ping that phone, identify through the phone company the current location of the phone, and we actually had located that phone in near the airport or at the airport in Louisville, Kentucky, and we didn't even have his full name yet. We just found the phone, um, then we were able to get his name. Police found a pair of white New Balance tennis shoes with a bloody shoelace in Abulazam's bag at a Louisville airport after his luggage missed a connecting flight bound for Atlanta. The luggage had not gotten onto his flight. It had been left behind, like sometimes happens with the airport. And when we learned that, we had that secured at the airport and ultimately sent someone down to pick it up and with a search warrant 
searched the contents of it and found that shoe with some blood stain that matched one of our cases. Back in Michigan, a photo was obtained of Abu Lazam and put in a photo lineup. Had one of the victims view the photo lineup. They immediately picked him out, positively identified him as being the person that had stabbed them. A U.S. Customs agent brought onto the case opened the door to nationwide flight manifests that allowed investigators to find out Ubulazam had gone by plane from Detroit to Louisville and Atlanta. The agent alerted the task force back in Michigan. The phone being tracked that gone silent for a bit now surfaced in Atlanta. But law enforcement officials weren't sure how much time they had. The primary suspect in a string of 14 stabbings in the Flint area was due to board a plane in Atlanta, Georgia, bound for Israel. Og said everyone was on pins and needles as a race against the clock began. The level of communication, everybody that worked on that case worked. I mean, we'd, we'd start at 5, 6 in the morning and just the efforts that went into it by everyone and how well everyone worked together. Um, yeah, very, very memorable because it was very critical that we try to get him before he boarded that flight. I mean, there were extradition agreements with Israel, but obviously that would have added a whole nother level to getting him back. We wanted to catch him in the States if we could. It was in the Hartfields Jackson International Airport where the six foot four, two hundred and seventy pound Elias Abulazam stood ready to hop on a plane. Little did he know about the investigation taking place behind the scenes and what Og already knew about him. Yep, we had we had people that contacted members of our task force contacted the authorities at the airport in Atlanta. The Atlanta Georgia Police Department had people assigned there at the airport. An alert U.S. Customs and Border Patrol Protection Officer passed out the photo to officers in the airport. So the authorities there went to that section of the airport to that boarding location and actually paged him to the desk so they could positively identify him, and that's when he was arrested. Following the arrest, Og said there was a moment of elation, but tips continued to come in, and police worked diligently to investigate all of them. And to realize that, okay, we have identified him, we have located him, and we have arrested him. Yeah, it was, I mean, uh, yeah, the, the energy that went through the state police post that night was pretty amazing. Testimony during an eight-day-long trial for Abu Lazam included several victims, all of whom described him asking for directions prior to the attacks. Attorneys for Abu Lazam alleged he was insane at the time of the attacks, with one psychiatrist hired by the defense saying Abu Lazam suffered from paranoid schizophrenia. Witnesses for the prosecution argued that Abu Lazam's actions exhibited premeditation, deliberation, and an awareness of right and wrong. As long as it took police to piece together the clues, it took a jury less than two and a half hours to find Abu Lazam guilty on May 22, 2012, of first-degree murder and the death of Arnold Minor, Abu Lazam's final victim to die from his injuries. Additional murder counts and assault with intent to murder charges were later dropped as Abu Lazam was sentenced to life in prison with no possibility of parole. Abu Lazam appealed the ruling, but an appeals court later upheld the conviction in June 2014. He's serving out his life term at the Ernest C. Brooks Correctional Facility in Muskegon Heights.
this is Gus Burns, and we're sitting here with reporter Roberto Acosta, who uh, did the story for us, and also a former editor from the Flint Journal, and I'm live in Flint, Bryn Mickle. And welcome, and thanks for being here. And I just wanted to, I guess, start off with, I, re I was reporting in Saginaw at the time, and I remember the story. It was huge. But I kind of wanted to get a feel for, like, what was it like on the streets? Like, what was it, what were people talking about? What was the feeling? Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, the whole city was on edge. I mean, you, you had these uh, these uh, guys were getting murdered seemingly at random. Um, there was a link in that... Uh, they were homeless, they were on the streets, but uh, there was just a lot of confusion going on out there of, of really what was going on. Uh, in a city like Flint, homicides aren't anything new. Uh, the, the city's problems with that are well documented, but something as random as this was, uh, was definitely something different for the city. And normally the deaths that Flint sees are a little bit more targeted, is that kind of the idea? Yeah, I mean, a lot of them are drug-related, um, they're between acquaintances, uh, you don't. We've had serial killers there in the past, uh, but but like I say, this was definitely something unique. What were people changing about their habits or anything? Did you guys notice that, um, or, or did you learn about that, Roberto, at all? I'm um, just kind of reading up on it. I was just starting as a reporter in in the county actually at the time, and had gone to a few of the the press conferences, but did notice, you know, in one of the instances when they found out where the market was, people would gather outside. It kind of became a spectacle and in some instances Bryn might be able to better talk about the on the street though. Well we actually sent a reporter out uh, David Harris uh, who was one of our police reporters and we sent him out one night uh, to go capture sort of the atmosphere out there and I remember um, you know he was out there he came back and he said that uh, one of the people he talked to pulled out a knife uh, to show him and said, yeah, I'm carrying a knife now just in case I get attacked. Which, you know, for one of our reporters, when you have a serial stabber running around, to then have a knife produced in his presence was a little unsettling for him. And I think uh, I think that same story, that another guy had like a fallen limb or a tree. He was using a, basically a tree limb as a club branch. to protect himself to, or branch. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, it, it was crazy. Yeah, it's an interesting thing because I, I grew up in uh, D.C. area around the time of the serial sniper, so you see that kind of community response to this going on, and it really feels out of control, it sounds like. And it sounds like Flint was feeling that, too. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it was one of those cases where you sort of, you'd walk around and you'd look and, you know, you see somebody on the street and you have to think, you know, is that the person? You know, it just really grips the city like that. So can we talk a little bit about the M.O. in this case, you know, the types of people being targeted, who were the victims here? Yeah, for the most part, it seemed it was, you know, smaller African-American males that were targeted. Typically, the response was that he would walk up to them, ask for directions, you know, people asking to, to fix their cars. It was typically late at night that many of these were actually taking place. It was kind of the, the M.O. I feel like I remember uh, reading that no one seemed to want to pin a, a racial motive to this. Do you remember more about the racial component to that? Yeah, that had been part of the discussion. I know the in Virginia, actually, where there were some other alleged stabbings that, had, that Bullzom had potentially committed um, that was brought up. The local prosecutors in Genesee County didn't really see that. They saw it more as a circumstance with Flint being a majority African-American community. You know, there was probably not a, a racial motive, at least through it, their so eyes. So. What were they saying the motive was? That's a good question, because I didn't particularly 
find one, you know, in, in looking and in, in remembering things. I know in, in the court case, actually, his attorney argued that evil spirits were at play, uh, that, that he was a paranoid schizophrenic, but the prosecutor's office disputed that. They brought up three witnesses. Actually, they paid one $15,000 uh, <laughs> as a witness to come in and, and, and refute those claims. Right. So they were, their defense was originally going to be that he was not guilty by reason of insanity. Yeah. And I think there was, they said he had schizophrenia. But do you remember, what was their argument saying that he wasn't mentally ill? From some of the information I'd seen was uh, he had had an unspecified uh, personality disorder, that he lacked empathy, but it didn't raise to the level of him, you know, actually being insane. And now were the victims similar in Virginia where he was alleged to have also um, done stabbings? I believe that I'd seen that the, the three victims there were African-American as well in, in the information that I'd seen. There was also an alleged victim, I believe, in Ohio as well, uh, and there were charges filed. But uh, once he was found guilty of one of the, the killings in, in Flint, the rest of those charges were dropped. Yeah, so I, I thought that was odd. And I was looking at him up mm-hmm. right now in the Michigan Department of Corrections, and it's only got one conviction for one murder. I mean, he got life, but I, is there any concern that because he doesn't have multiple murder convictions that, that could give him a chance to get out at some point? I don't believe so. I mean, it was life you know, in prison with, without possibility of parole. Um, he's tried several times to appeal that. In the beginning, it was because of the notoriety. You know, he'd gotten the label serial stabber. People in the community widely knew about the, the incidents, obviously. Uh, he also did file a, a federal lawsuit trying to get deported back to Israel, where he oh, was originally really? from. Yeah, he was. there was an attempted murder there as well. I believe he tried to stab maybe someone in the face with a screwdriver, I think it was, but that was discarded as well. So what do you know about his life behind bars now that he's been convicted to life? We'd done some reporting after that, and this is going on three years back now, but there had been multiple disciplinary reports that he had had violent interactions with guards, and inmates in prison, and also possession of a, a large shank, as they described it, made out of plexiglass. So kind of the... Some a of unique type of shank. Those <laughs> violent interactions have continued, apparently. That's not someone you'd want coming after you. No, <laughs> no. he's. Uh, was disc- I mean, when you look at the photos from that time period, uh, one of the iconic ones for me is him kind of coming out of this paddy wagon at the jail. He's just a hulk of a guy. I mean, 6'4", 6'5". 275, 280, these tiny handcuffs on and kind of dwarfing some of the the law enforcement officials around him. All right, Roberto and Bryn, I appreciate you guys coming in to talk to us and sharing what you remember about this crazy story. Yeah, thank you guys. Certainly. Yeah, thank you. Tanya Magellis did the audio editing for this episode, and John Counts provided the music. Michigan Crime Stories will return next month with a special series. Stay tuned.